electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. in for Scott Wapner. You just heard the bells, but we are just getting started from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. In just a few moments, you're going to hear from one of the biggest bulls on Wall Street. Fundstrat's Tom Lee just updated his outlook for stocks heading into the new year, where he sees the biggest upside opportunities, yes, upside for your money in 2023. But we start with our talk of the tape. The bulls betting on a big finish to a brutal year. Stocks posting small gains today with the Dow snapping a two-week losing streak. But all three major averages are still on pace for their worst year since 2008. And with just four trading days left to go, could we see a big burst of buying to close out 2022? Well, let's ask Cameron Dawson, New Edge Wealth Chief Investment Officer. Cameron, uh, great to see you. Um, happy holidays to you. So um, what you say to expect a retest of October lows in Q1. So what do you do to close out the year? Uh, the folks at home have just four days left, one week uh, of trading left. Should they uh, put their money in dry powder now and, and wait for those lows or are there opportunities to be had for Santa? Well, I think it's important not to read too much into end of year trading. Usually volumes are pretty light, so we can see whipsaws. And so then we have to think about when we start January 1st, brand new, where do we stand? And we see a market that had a big rally coming off of the October lows. It hit resistance at the 200-day moving average and resolutely has rolled over and with some momentum. And so that sets us up once we've seen a break of that 20-day low as well to retest the October lows. And so our discipline all through this bear market has been don't chase rallies, mostly as you're getting close to the 200-day moving average, but to be opportunistic for the long run when you get oversold versus your 200-day. It just means that we might not be catching the ultimate low in this bear market, but it keeps us from selling and getting scared at the lows. And so when you start trading down 10, 15% plus below the 200-day, that's when you can start accumulating, but we're now only about 5% below the 200-day, so we don't think that we're there yet. Okay, so for the folks playing at home, I want to translate this. I mean, not everybody is uh, a day trader or, or managing um, wealth for, for a lot of people. So you've got options now on what to do with your money if it's not in stocks all the time. You can, uh, you know, make 4% on your money. How do you manage that? How do you think about that at a time like this if you're not just jumping in from stock to stock? Yeah, it's of course important because we are long-term investors as well. I think the first thing to stand for is that we have to question if we're going to have higher yields within fixed income. It's fantastic because we can lock in the same return for a lower amount of risk. But investors who are tax sensitive, which all of our investors are, we have to be conscious that if we're selling equities to buy bonds, we would be paying capital gains taxes. So that's the first mm. thing to acknowledge. But we do think that now if you have a 
set return goal that you have, you can look to fixed income and investment grade and high yield. Now, we would note that if, if equity markets continue to go down, we would expect credit spreads to widen. So it doesn't mean that we're out of the woods completely within bonds, but we do see a setup where we're being far more better compensated for our bond investments than we really have been for much of the past decade. Okay, well, let's talk about the macro economy and the signals that we can get from it. You say consumer sentiment can be deceiving. You don't believe that it's an indicator for what the consumer is actually going to do. Why not? Well, it's important to acknowledge that consumer sentiment has been absolutely abysmal since April of 2021. And that coincided with the fall in real wage growth, meaning wages after inflation. That's when real wage growth first went negative. And so even though we've seen consumer sentiment be absolutely terrible since then, We've seen consumers continue to spend. They're finding ways to spend, whether it's spending down savings or turning to credit cards. So to say that because now we're seeing a boost in consumer sentiment that we'll see an acceleration in spending, I think is a bit too far to step. The other thing to acknowledge is that the big relief we've seen in consumer sentiment has all really been because of inflation expectations, which are extremely hmm. correlated to gasoline prices. And gasoline prices have fallen materially since the middle of this year, which has provided a relief to consumers. But if we start to see gas prices climb again next year, that could be a source of upward pressure on inflation expectations, and thus consumers right. could start to feel a little bit more sour. It sounds like you're saying consumer sentiment, more of a measure of how people feel after they've spent not necessarily whether they're going to spend or not. Uh, well, yeah. Let's talk some specific areas here. You like health care, you like energy, but those have held up pretty well. Why, why do you think energy in particular is, uh, is a good wild card play here in this inflationary environment? Well, it gets back to a similar thing that we were talking about with consumer sentiment, which is that if oil prices rise, we would see pressure upward on inflation. We could see inflation start to reaccelerate, and we would think that that would be bad for other parts of our portfolio. The market would not like to see inflation reaccelerate. So in order to hedge that risk, we still remain long energy because it is still cheap. It's only trading at nine and a half times earnings. And we think that it's still structurally underowned. meaning if you look at ETF flows this year, you haven't seen big, huge flows into the energy ETF. You've actually seen outflows. So when we think about names, we're still focusing on the high, highest quality parts of the sector, but we're getting paid really nice dividends from companies with strong fundamentals, essentially to hedge inflation risk and our portfolios. All right, we're talking bonds and dividends. And I mean, there's a lot of caution here. And, and along those lines, let's bring in CNBC contributors, Greg Branch of Veritas uh, Financial. He is uh, the founder and managing partner and Brenda Vingello of Sand Hill Global Advisors, chief investment officer over there. And of course, uh, Cameron, stick around. Greg, I, I want to set this out up now. Tom Lee is coming on in a few minutes. He thinks the Fed might be done hiking rates, like no rate hikes in 2023. You do not think that. You think the Fed's going to end up hiking even more than expected. Why? Let's start with whether or not we're going to believe the Fed. One of the phenomena from this year, when we look back on it, is that we haven't listened to them. And so, you know, this Fed, unlike any other Fed in history, has taken great pains to actually give us explicit guidance as to what they're going to do. 
And back in July, when people started talking about a pivot, they were only halfway to their intimated 4% terminal rate. Now they're intimating a five and a quarter uh, terminal rate. I do likely think it's higher than that because as we saw, wage growth continues to be strong. And we know that that's one of the driving forces behind services inflation, which is where inflation is still really hot. Uh, but at the end of the day, I just believe what they're saying, and not only the Fed, but the ECB and the Bank of England, et cetera, et cetera. And so to take a position, um, with all due respect to my colleague Tom, that, that Tom is taking, you're saying that they're indicating or that they're wrong about what they're going to do. And I'm, that's, not a, that's not a ledge I'm willing <laughs> to jump out on at this point. Okay, Brenda, if you believe the Fed, if you believe Greg, and, uh, and rates are still going higher. Why buy bonds now? Well, I think if you look at, at bonds in general, you know, the risk reward in our view has just gotten a lot better, especially versus stocks. So if you think about what if the Fed continues raising rates and that ultimately leads to the recession that everyone has been anticipating this year, I think you're going to get a worse return from from uh, stocks. Meanwhile, bonds in that scenario would likely sniff out a recession coming earlier and you'd start to see the yield curve invert even further, which means that you could have a positive price return from the bonds in addition to that yield that they're still providing. So when we look at the risk reward, we just think it's favoring bonds more at this moment than it has in a long time. Um, we what are kind not of bonds the, are we talking here? Like how 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 risky, how far from investment grade are you willing to go? I think you can stick with investment grade and get a really decent yield right now. You know, in our view, municipal bonds are really the most attractive. We manage money in a high tax state of California. And so the tax equivalent yields on many of the bonds we're able to buy is around 7%. In our view, that is a really attractive place to be right now, especially if we look at Let's say that um, you know that uh, Tom Lee perhaps is right, and we do get more upside to the equity market. We really see it being capped probably around ten percent, and in a much less risky asset um, on a tax after tax basis, we think is really attractive. Okay, Cameron, let me let me throw it back out to you for a sec. We're talking. I mean, there's a lot of caution in this conversation, so there's got to be some areas where you're taking on some risk to balance that out. What are those areas and how are you screening that risk? Sure, so we are still buyers of quality on weakness and we define quality very definitely with things like strong free cash flow growth, strong return on invested capital, good balance sheets, and really resilient business models. And so we've been buyers on weakness all year in those quality names across sectors because when you have quality that goes on sale as it does in bear markets, it's really the ability to be able to build into positions that you'll hold throughout the next cycle. So that's been our key focus. We do not think that it is time yet to go into risk, very risky beta plays or speculative parts of the market. Those really require liquidity growth to start re-accelerating. So a really easy proxy for that is M2 money supply growth. Until we see money supply growth really start to take off again, which would really require an easy Fed, we don't want to be stepping into speculative risk because the risk, of course, is that you round trip any short term gains that you have. Sure, sure. Greg, what about you? Like, what kinds of risk are you willing to take here? Are there, I mean, I, I know people often don't want to call out specific stocks, but feel free if you do, um, sectors right. where you're more willing to do that? 
Yeah, so I agree with most of the sentiments uh, uh, we just heard expressed. Um, I would, to set the context, say, you know, right now the market is trading, broadly the markets are trading, uh, S&P is trading at around 17.3 times next year's earnings. Uh, those, those earnings estimates, in my view, are, are likely too high. Uh, we have uh, single digits in the first and second quarter jumping to uh, low double digits in the back half. And I think we'll see downward revisions on those numbers. But overall, the market is not necessarily cheap. Now, within that, there are outperformers. And we saw energy and healthcare as the only two sectors that gave us positive earnings growth in the third quarter. And I think that that will continue into the fourth quarter. We've seen with energy that even when the commodity prices retreat, that the actual equities have continued to be resilient. Not only are they buying back stocks, uh, buying back shares, they're increasing dividends, they are adding capacity. And so I think that those are places, energy and healthcare, where we'll continue to see reliable earnings growth over the next couple of quarters, as well as inelastic demand. Very important for that top line. Financials are worth a look, I think, at some point. They have started their provisioning cycles in the fourth quarter. They are projected to be one of the uh, most significant uh, earnings contractors. And I think that that will become an interesting time to look at them. And you obviously mm. want to, uh, anytime they start to get close to that price to tangible book level, as some of those big names are starting to get, uh, particularly if sentiment is off as they're going through the provisioning cycle with down earnings, I think that could become very interesting in the fourth quarter as well. All right, energy, healthcare. I know uh, Cameron likes those too. Uh, Brenda, you see Q4 earnings reports, which we'll expect to, to start seeing in mid-January as a catalyst. But what kind of Christmas do you think is priced in right now? I mean, are, are we going to find out that discounting was heavier, that sales were slower, inventories are actually worse than expected when we get those reports, or are they, they going to be better? Well, I think it's hard to say at this point, but I will say just based on the earnings reports that we've seen this week, it's really suggestive that there is a lot of bad news priced in. And I think certainly if we see a scenario like Nike play out across the consumer sector where yeah, things are not perfect, but they are able to clear out a lot of the inventory that they've been sitting on, I think that would be a good scenario. But I, I do think that sentiment really has uh, become a uh, quite miserable with regard to 2023 earnings. And it's not surprising given all the gloom and doom and all of the um, um, expectations, uh, talk of expectations coming down uh, from strategists across the board over the last couple of months. Uh, so I think we, what we could find is that maybe things aren't quite as bad as everyone is expecting. Uh, but even still, if we hold with that 235 number for next year's earnings, I still think that upside is likely limited to that 10% number, even if you know we don't see a degradation in earnings estimates coming down. So hence my view that bonds are still attractive relative to stock in that scenario. But I do think there are opportunities within the stock market as well. I just think you have to look outside of large cap equity. And I think in many cases, valuation back in October was near all-time lows for other parts of the market, like small, mid-cap, as well as international equity. Um, I think on the large cap side, you have to be pickier. I think it's more of a stock picker's market. And I think there are opportunities, but I think you have to be careful and really buy wisely um, in that space. Cameron, do you, do you agree that sentiment uh, has been that bad? I mean, in a way, we're still way above the October lows. And I mean, we were soaring pretty high there above uh, 4,000 on the S&P not too long ago. But um, 
what, what kind of uh, reception do you think the Q4 earnings are going to get? And what kind of an impact do you expect that to have on the rest of the first half of the year? Sure. Well, I think it's going to be really important as well, the guidance that we get going into next year, because we think that the wild card for Q4 earnings and the guidance really is around margins, because I think what's underappreciated is just how powerful inflation actually was for driving margins higher because it gave companies pricing power. But we're now in a world where that pricing power is starting to fade as inflation is rolling over. We're hearing reports of companies cutting prices, look at Nike this week, look at Tesla this week, which points to maybe there being a softening of demand or pockets where inventories are too high. So in a world where your top line is starting to decelerate, but your input costs of things like labor costs, and we know wages are still running at about six and a half percent, that would mean that there could be outside pressure on the margins. So even if growth holds up a little bit better in the overall economy, what we really don't know is how much downside to that EPS number could come from just margin compression. Yeah, um, Greg, finish out with that thought. I mean, if there is this big inventory overhang despite the uh, return to some pretty extreme discounting that we've seen this holiday season uh, and demand has waned over that period. What does that mean for EPS in the first half of 23? So, so right now, again, I, I think consensus is too high. Uh, fourth quarter expectations started around 8% mid-year. They were around 3.7% September 30th. Now we're at a, almost negative 3% for the fourth quarter. The first quarter is sitting there at about 1.5%, if I remember. And I, I do believe that that's too high. At the end of the day, while it is great that consumer sentiment has rebounded from the, the mid-year lows, you know, we went from 50 to around 59 And by the way, that means that some of what the Fed is trying to accomplish is actually getting done. At the end of the day, one of the reasons why they went a draconian 75 basis points four times in a row is that they wanted to root out the systemic, the expectations of inflation becoming systemic and structural and therefore breeding more inflation. And so seeing consumer sentiment tick up is promising in that regard. But at the end of the day, I'm also been watching the consumer balance sheet deteriorate throughout the year. We had a 2.3% savings rate right last time we saw. And so we had a record uh, credit card application every quarter. Exactly. And so I do believe believe that would be a negative. Yeah, they're getting heavy. Uh, Greg, (laughs) a lot of defense. Playing a lot of defense, but it makes sense given where the market is. Cameron, Brenda, thank you. Now, Jim Cramer just did a bunch of buying following this topsy-turvy week, and you can find out what was on his shopping list by signing up for the Investing Club newsletter. You can scan the QR code right there on the screen, bottom left, and get the newsletter. Now, let's get to today's Twitter question. We want to know, which of these 2022 losers do you think has the most upside in the new year? Intel, Salesforce, Disney, or Nike? Head to at CNBC Overtime to vote, and we will share the results later in the hour. Now we are following new developments on the collapse of FTX. Kate Rooney has the details. Kate? Hey there, John. We have some new details around the plea deal of Sam Bankman-Fried's top lieutenants. A transcript of Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang's court hearings were just made available today. We've been going through a copy of some of those. Ellison was the CEO of Alameda. That's the trading firm founded and majority owned by the FTX founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. Wang, meanwhile, co-founded uh, FTX. Ellison, let's start with her, apologized in court this week 
as she pleaded guilty to fraud and multiple other offenses. She told the judge that she and others did indeed conspire to steal billions of dollars from FTX customers and misled investors and lenders. In that transcript, Ellison says that she's sorry for what she did. She says she knew it was wrong at the time. And she implicates CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, former CEO, and says, quote, I agreed with Mr. Bankman-Fried and others to provide materially misleading financial statements to Alameda's lenders. She also admits to conspiring to use billions of dollars from FTX customer accounts to repay loans at Alameda after the fund was taking some pretty steep losses from its risky crypto bets. Ellison said that she understood that many FTX customers invested in crypto derivatives and that most FTX customers did not expect that FTX would lend out their crypto holdings and deposits to Alameda in this fashion. Gary Wong, meanwhile, says that he, quote, agreed to make certain changes to the platform code and knew those changes would give Alameda special privileges on FTX. We also now know that the federal prosecutors here had asked to have these temporarily sealed, these documents sealed in connection uh, to Ellison and Wong's plea agreement so that Bankman-Fried would agree to extradition from the Bahamas. They had asked the judge to keep some of the details of his cooperation sealed until he arrived here back in the U.S. And, John, this does not bode well for Sam Bankman-Fried's legal defense and his claim that he didn't knowingly commit any fraud. Back to you. Yeah, these people very close to him, not leaving a lot of room for ignorance and errors if they're saying... We knew what we were doing. Kate, thanks. Thanks, John. We're just getting started here in overtime. Up next, positioned for a pause. Fundstrat's Time Lee says there's a chance the Fed won't raise rates at all in 2023, and that if that's the case, it would trigger a massive rally. We're going to press him on that bold call. And later, five-star stock picks. One top-ranked money manager is opening his playbook as we head into a new year. I'm going to tell you the names he's betting on, so don't go anywhere over time. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor 
future. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. We are back in overtime. One of Wall Street's biggest bulls out with a bold call heading into the new year. Fundstraps Tom Lee says there's an outside chance the Fed might not raise rates at all in 2023. And if that happens, stocks are going to rally in a big way. Tom is a CNBC contributor, joins us now. Tom, good to see you. Um, Happy holidays. So wait a minute, though. Okay, if if the Fed doesn't hike at all in 23, doesn't that mean that the economy has deteriorated, maybe even fallen apart to the point where stocks will, too? Hi, John. Uh, I think that's people's first conclusion if they think the Fed's pausing. But I think another reason the central banks can actually pause is if inflation is indeed tracking lower than they expected. Last week, the December FOMC, their projections for inflation at the end of this year was 4.8%. That's using on PCE. They had raised it from 4.5% in September. We just got November PCE, and if November, which was a tame number, is the same in December, year-over-year inflation is going to be 4.2 versus what they expected to be 4.8%. That's 60 basis points lower than what the Fed expected. So if you had to say- Do you think they really pause entirely with that, though, or just go to uh, 25 basis points? Well- John, one thing to keep in mind is inflation for the last three months has annualized at 2% a month. If we get December, that's another month of that at 2%. And housing, as we know, is starting to soften. So, in fact, 60% of core inflation, which is housing, is softening. I I actually think with the run rate for inflation into the first half of next year could be even below 2%. I don't think investors right. are going to want the Fed to be raising rates in that environment. In fact, the bond market, I well, think... Yeah. I mean, is, I don't I think, think the investors out. want the Fed to be raising rates this much even now, but don't you think the Fed still will? I mean, really, do you think they'll pause even if we hit those those numbers that you said? It's a great question, John. I'm just, I think one thing to point out is the bond market is already assuming the Fed may indeed not raise rates next year. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your uh, prior guests have noted the two-year... Uh, is actually exactly where the midpoint of Fed funds is. So it's kind of saying the Fed isn't yeah. going to raise rates. But, you know, before the next meeting, which is in at the end of January, February 1, you're going to get a couple of inflation prints. You know, you're going to get CPI and PCE, and you're going to get jolts. And if, if the labor market is softening and we get another tame inflation number, I think it's going to be hard for the Fed to say, well, inflation was 60 base points lower in 2022. It's continuing to be pretty soft but we still want to raise rates. I, I think that's one scenario that we need to keep in mind. The Fed is, is, is becoming data dependent. It's not in a hurry anymore to raise rates. Okay. All right. So this is the uncomfortable part because you were wrong about 2022. April, you said the lows were in. July, you said the bear market was over. I think you said Bitcoin at one point was going to hit 200,000. We'll see if it ends at 17,000. So I got to ask you, what did you <laughs> learn in 2022 that makes your 23 predictions better? Well, uh, I mean, 2022 was a tough year because inflation indeed turned out to be a lot more ferocious uh, over the course of the year. But uh, inflation peaked um, in the middle of 2022. And we know central banks have actually had to act with some urgency 
And as you know, when, when you got inflation, you got the Fed acting hawkishly, of course it's tough for markets. The question you're asking, which I think is correct is, well, in 2023, are we gonna have the same set of conditions, right? We've had a hawkish Fed and a surge in inflation and the market was down 19%. So if the Fed is becoming more predictable, which it is, and inflation now is running at 2%, I think that there is, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, the question is, well, why should that mean stocks go down next year? You know, if you look at strategist forecasts, out of the 25 forecasts, only three of them think stocks will do better than cash. Uh, right. Well, volatility is but, probably going to collapse next year. Um, the, and you know, there's the also rose. the possibility that stocks don't just don't do much at all, which um, which is in a way scarier uh, because uh, when things move, people make money. But I got to ask you before you go about crypto. What about crypto? What, what does it move on? Why did you think it was going to get as high as you thought it was going to get? It didn't. So where does it go from here? John, great question. Uh, you know, the, the forecasts for crypto come from Sean, who's our head of digital asset research. And at the start of the year, he thought it would get to 200,000. He quickly changed that. So those are stale. And it's actually incorrect to say we said 200,000. We didn't change that forecast. Uh, that's like holding someone to a January 1 number and never letting them change it. He's changed it multiple times. And his target is around 15,000 for Bitcoin, which is where it is now. But does Bitcoin do better next year? Uh, it's it's going to be dependent on whether financial conditions loosen. So I think the central banks will have a lot to do with how crypto performs. But our bet is that we passed peak hawkishness for the Fed. And I think that's actually good news for Bitcoin. But it's been a tough year. I mean, a lot has happened All in right. crypto that's been bad. Yeah, I get, we were just talking about some of it. And I get you revisions, but 200 to 15, that's a heck of a revision. You got to admit, uh, Tom Lee, always it good is. to talk to you. All right, time now for a CNBC News update with Bertha Coombs. Bertha. Hey, here's our news update at this hour, John. The massive winter storm is also causing flooding from Maine to at least as far as south as New York. Near Boston, the wind is pushing huge waves ashore. In Boston itself, some downtown streets have been flooded. Yikes. In Ohio, meantime, several crashes involving up to 50 cars have closed parts of the Ohio Turnpike in at least three counties. Ohio State Police say at least one person died in the hazardous conditions. At least nine people have died in crashes related to the winter storm since yesterday. And the harsh weather also impacting the energy sector. More than a million barrels a day of refining capacity has been shut due to the cold. Oil and gas wells are also getting frozen. Natural gas output has fallen to a nine-month low. Power outages are starting to ease. About one and a quarter million homes and businesses, though, still without electricity, according to trackingpoweroutage.us. That's down from a peak of about one and a half million. Happy holidays to you and your family, John. I'll see you in the new year. And to you and yours, Bertha. Thank you. And up next, believe it or not, we are going bargain hunting in tech. You're going to find out where you can find the biggest upside opportunities in this beaten down sector. Don't go anywhere. Over time, be right back. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. 
Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. We are back in overtime. Energy, utilities, staples, and healthcare all holding up better than the rest of the market this year with energy, the only sector seeing gains. And my next guest continues to see opportunity in two of these sectors for 2023. Let's bring in Kevin Simpson of Capital Wealth Planning and get right to the specifics. Kevin, I love it. So, Devon Energy, talk about your approach to energy, why you think that's going to continue to be important, and maybe talk about what you're doing with Duke Energy as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I love all four of those sectors that you just teased up there, but consumer staples and utilities have you know, been a place where a lot of folks have been hiding, so the multiples are still a little extended. Energy was the best performer by far, and I think it will continue to just rally on as we look at the massive cash flows that they're generating and the cash flows that they're distributing to shareholders. So we've been owners of Duke, buying it um, for a long period of time. I actually wrote a covered call on Duke Energy early December, which is tough to do. But the, the idea of Devon Energy is just so exciting because of that variable dividend. They have a fixed dividend, and then they're paying out a variable dividend based on their profitability. And they're willing to give up to 50% of the free cash flow to shareholders on that variable dividend. So it's conceivable that you could get somewhere, John, between 7 8 maybe 9% on that stock. And, and healthcare, to pivot over to another sector that we still like, it's getting a little extended on multiples. But we put a new position in the portfolio this week, and we bought Amgen. Now, we've owned Amgen in the past over the years. This is a stock that probably will continue to be volatile with the rest of the market as we enter into 2023. But the number on the multiple for next year is around 14 or 15. The dividend is over 3%, approaching 3.5%. They just raised it by 10%. And over the past mm -hmm. five years, they have had an average dividend growth of 15% per year. So we like the stocks. Okay. Let's go back to energy, though, and specifically Devon and Duke. Tell me why. You, you could have bought anything in the space if you like energy. What, what was it specifically about those stocks, what you were looking for, what you were screaming, screening for that had you zero in on them, especially considering, yes, energy prices might stay relatively high, but also demand is weakening? Yeah, well, let's talk my book, because we own Chevron for the past decade. We still have that in the portfolio. Duke, we've had in there for a long time, a little bit more of a utility than an energy name. The reason we went with Devon, John, is because we had Marathon Petroleum in there, and we had a covered call on Marathon. It got called away into some really, really strong plays with the energy names. They've rolled over quite a bit. And we've been able to re-enter this, this Devon Energy position really on price action. You could look at ConocoPhillips or Devon or Marathon, which we sold. I think they're all you know, really, really attractive at these levels. But there will be continued volatility, just to your point on, on demand. And I think we'll be able to continue to buy them probably at lower prices in the first quarter. To me, markets are pretty stretched right here. We're active managers. Mm -hmm. We need to be fully invested as, as best we can. So we're looking for opportunities. And, and I think when you look at Devon, you think about multiple compression in the broader markets, this is a single digit PE. 
you know, five, six PE. So if we see rates going higher, multiple compression across the board, I feel very comfortable and very safe looking for value right. companies, which everybody talks about, but I define it very specifically with valuations. Well, that is a valuable peek into your thought process. Uh, Kevin Simpson, thank you. Thanks, John. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. And we are about to close the books on another big week on Wall Street. Our Kate Rooney is standing by with your rapid recap. Kate. Hi, John. One commodity having its best week since October, while another high-profile EV stock is having its worst week since the early days of the pandemic. All that and a lot more right after the short break. We are wrapping up another big week for your money. Let's get to Kate Rooney with our rapid recap. Hi, John. So we had lighter than usual volume today as investors got ready for the long weekend. The major averages closing higher, but all up less than 1% today. For the week, only the Dow closed in the green, up eight-tenths of 1%. The big sector winner this week was energy, higher than by more than 4%. And the next best performer, utilities, gaining about 1.5%. Energy was also boosted by rising crude prices, West Texas Intermediate, WTI, so it's best weekly gain since early October, up about 7%. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum, discretionary. That was the big laggard, off more than 3%. Technology, meanwhile, lost about 2% on this week. One stock weighing on the discretionary sector, Tesla. The EV maker uh, shedding nearly one-fifth of its value this week. And that, of course, coming as some investors worry that CEO Elon Musk's stewardship of Twitter is taking up too much of his time. John, back to you. Uh, Kate, thanks. And still ahead, we are going to discuss whether a Santa Claus rally could be in the cards for the last short trading week of the year. And speaking of Santa, coming up at the top of the hour, the Fast Money crew is handing out some stocking stuffer stock picks to close out the year. Stick with us. Overtime. We'll be right back. Hey, this is the last call to weigh in on our Twitter question. We want to know which of these 2022 losers has the most upside next year. You can head to at CNBC Overtime to vote, and we will bring you the results. Intel, Salesforce, Disney, or Nike. Plus, you're set up into the final trading week of the year. That's next. All right, time's up. Let's get the results of our Twitter question. We asked which of these 2022 losers has the biggest upside next year. Disney, the big winner by more than 10 points, 34% of the vote. Intel and Salesforce tied for second. Nike running fourth. Ouch. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ, meanwhile, wrapping up their third straight week of losses. So what's the setup for the final trading days of the year? CNBC contributor Gunjan Banerjee of The Wall Street Journal is with us. Gunjan, um, yeah, I want to talk about the last trading days of the year, but also in the next year, given what you're seeing with what retail investors are doing with margin and with options compared to what they were doing, I don't know, nine months, a year ago, what's the impact? Right, John, great to be here. It's been such an interesting year for retail, as we have discussed before. A lot of a lot of these investors have kept buying. I think one big trend to watch is that some of them have pared back on how much risk they're taking in the markets, kind of getting more cautious about what's going on out there. We saw margin debt levels hit the lowest levels since July 2020. Um, so that just shows you people aren't willing to take those, you know, big, 
bold bets on the market. They're not looking to turbocharge their investments to the extent they were in 2020 or 2021. And that just shows you how cautious people have gotten kind of going into the final week of the trading year. So, Gunjan, how much of an impact did that retail activity, the kind of Robin Hood driven, uh, you know, uh, borrowing driven risk have on the trajectory of stocks like Tesla that we now see in a downdraft? I mean, the, the fact that they're not, at least for now, taking on that kind of risk, is that going to have an impact on some of these stocks ability to get back where they were before? Look, that's one key thing to watch, especially because the types of trades that were favored by a lot of individual investors, they've been hit the hardest this year. Think Apple, Amazon, Tesla, ARK. You know, some of these are at their lowest levels since 2017, 2019. Amazon erasing all of its pandemic gains. That's a key thing to watch going into the last few trading sessions of the year and also next year. Additionally, do individual investors keep buying ETFs, keep buying the broader market? Because that's been a key source of support for markets, even during a terrible year for the S&P 500 this year. So do they keep buying? Do they provide that support for the markets? Key to watch. That is particularly interesting, given that there's so many people saying stock pickers market, that would mean not as much on the ETFs and mutual funds. Although with the indices down as much as they have been, Gunjan, now might be the time to go back to some of those. Gunjan Banerjee, thanks for being with us. And that'll do it for Overtime. Fast Money starts right now. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. 